Hello to all our listeners. You're listening to an episode of Case Confirmed with Dina and Vijayta. Today we're interviewing Dr. Jason Waswi. Dr. Waswi is an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School and director of quality and outcomes research at the Massachusetts General Hospital Heart Center. He is also a medical director of the Mass General Physicians Organization, where he directs all activities in population health management. As a clinical cardiologist, he sees a broad range of patients with heart disease and cares for patients in the cardiac intensive care unit. First of all, I just would say I'm delighted to participate and really appreciate you coming to visit, so thank you. Um, uh, So I I would say I do three things at Mass General. Uh, the first thing I do is I'm a cardiologist. I take care of patients uh, with heart disease. I take care of them in the outpatient setting, in the clinic, uh, in the hospital, and in the intensive care unit. Uh, my second role uh, is I'm the director of research and quality and outcomes at the Mass General Hospital Heart Center. So we do a variety of um, uh, research projects that are aimed at improving both the quality of care and value uh, provided to American uh, patients with uh, heart disease. My third role is an administrative role. I am one of the medical directors of the Massachusetts General Physicians Organization, and I have a variety of responsibilities, but the biggest part of that is I manage a lot of our programs in population health management. So these are programs, so this isn't research necessarily, but programs that are meant to advance uh, quality and value. So it's a nice uh, mix with my research role and my clinical role because um, all of these things ultimately uh, aim to improve quality and value in different ways. That's very interesting. Do you ever find yourself conflicted between being an outcomes researcher and a clinician and your administrative role? Yeah, it's a great question. I think in the best of scenarios, and when I try to set it up right, these roles are complementary. Uh, certainly my clinical work is at the core of what I do, and that those experiences uh, provoke me to ask uh, important questions in, in cardiology research uh, and inform a lot of what we do administratively because our administrative uh, work is rooted in, in clinical experience, uh, both for clinicians but also for patients. Um, so ideally, that uh, it actually there's a lot of synergy. I think the problems happen sometimes with, um, you know, it, often in research you really have to be totally focused on it to be successful. And so sometimes I can... Um, you know, uh, unlike many researchers, I have much more of a divided role, uh, so my attention can be divided. But um, but I but I think because my research and my administrative work are so closely delied, d- d- uh, tied to the delivery of healthcare, it usually works pretty well. And did you know from the offset of your career that you wanted to um, also be involved in administrative and policy roles, or and if not, like how did you um, how did you get involved in those areas? Yeah. You know, I, I I'm 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 almost forty, and so I think I've sort of gone to a reminiscence of my youth and some of these decisions, and I, and I, I didn't know exactly what I want to do for for sure. I, I mean, I'll, I'll start by saying this: when I was eleven years old my dad had a heart attack. And and there's something very formative about that, uh, which is to say that um, the, the way that feels to an 11-year-old is e- extraordinarily scary. And and you spend much of the next few years, and, and frankly, perhaps, you know, the last 30 years for me, uh, wor- worried that something like that could happen again. And, and it really is something that, that got in my bones. And, and I think that much more so than I even realized 
at the time as a, as a child. And I think um, I am passionate about improving the quality of healthcare, uh, particularly for patients with heart disease, but for all patients. And there's a variety of different ways that I can do that. And I think that in, in different ways, all of my roles work to that end. Uh, so that's something that I'm really passionate about. I think I could be passionate about any one of these roles, uh, but I um, improving um, the lives of these patients, especially those with heart disease, so that uh, people don't have to have loss and children don't have to have fear in the same way that I did um, is so important to me. Yeah, that's really amazing and something that um, really resonates with me a lot. Um, I'm curious to know your opinion on how well do we generally, like how well do we translate research into um, into action, into good policy? And you can speak on that either specifically here at Mass General or in the U.S. as a whole, both, however you want to take it. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, so I, I believe that it's critically important that both uh, the delivery of healthcare and also policies related to the delivery of healthcare are informed by, by rigorous uh, analytical efforts and research. Um, I, I would say that we, we, we at our organization, we, we're very committed to this as a, a academic medical center, and we have a lot of people that do research and uh, implement findings in our clinical programs. I think on a national level, it's, it's far more variable. I think that um, the delivery of healthcare could be a lot better if there was uh, more, um, if research findings informed the development of public health policy more. Uh, the, the problem, is, as you know, is that policy in particular, I'm sort of moving away from just healthcare delivery, but pu- public health policy, a- as any kind of public policy, is, is sort of a salami-making process where people um, have interests and agendas and ideologies, and, and that's often how policies get created. It's not the same way we think of as academics. We don't. It's not a direct link between evidence and, and policy in the way that it that could be. Um, and, and so you could imagine that in some ways, in a real ideal idealized scenario, you might actually not only have better public health policies, but you might have less conflict about the development of policy if research uh, and knowledge uh, was at the center of those uh, policy development efforts. Can you speak a little bit... Um in regards to the funding that is available in both academic medicine versus true public health? Yeah, so um, funding is always tough for everyone, including me. And it's it, a lot of the stress in, in my everyday life has to do with applying for grants and being nervous that they're going to be rejected. And I think that's a common uh, feeling under, um, among many academics. Um, so, so funding is tight on any of these efforts, but... I would say that um, if you look at public health expenditures in the United States, it's far less uh, compared to the wealth of our country than in other comparable countries, other wealthy countries or OECD countries. It's much less. We pay a lot more for health care, but a lot less for public health. So, you know, Elizabeth Bradley's work, there's there's been a lot of work in this area for many years. So I I think that that's unfortunate. I, I think that public health is in some ways the ultimate public good. And I think that investments 
uh, in public health uh, would not only pay for themselves in many cases, but uh, do so much to uh, improve the lives of all of our citizens. I agree. Yes, definitely. Um, in your opinion, why do you think that is in the U.S. that we spend proportionally much more on health care than we do in public health? Yeah, so <laughs> there's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot uh, uh, in that question. So I guess um, let me start by by health care. Um, you know, Ashish Jha has a nice paper out this year in JAMA you know, a few months ago about this, and there's been a variety of other work as well. I think the healthcare cost issue is is really complicated. A lot of it has to do with uh, the insurance system. I think recent work has demonstrated that the the price of healthcare um, has influenced the total cost of healthcare in very substantial ways. There are also different patterns of utilization, but I think more recent work has suggested that the, the price of healthcare um, is, is higher than in comparable countries in the United States. Uh, there are also issues with patient mix and patterns of utilization that perhaps are less influential, uh, but, but that is an important uh, issue. Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily, I have never in my mind necessarily tied the high cost of healthcare directly as a causal factor to the low cost of public health. I guess conceptually it could be because budgets are constrained, but there's so many other things that go into the budget. Um, but but it, is, um, it is important to, to remember that we're approaching nearly one-fifth of the gross domestic product, product, product in the United States uh, going to health care. And I'll, I'll say that there hasn't been a lot of rigorous analysis of what the effects of that are on the rest of the economy, but probably that uh, burdens the rest of the economy and does crowd out other priorities, including public health. Um, I, I think that there's so many issues with, with public health that are underfunded and could be funded uh, better um, to the point where I would bet that a lot of these programs ultimately would be um, – would have a return on investment that uh, would make them in the long run cost almost nothing. Um, so I, I think there's a variety of reasons, even if we can't immediately solve the cost problem in healthcare, uh, to support public health programs. I'm curious, um, just here at Mass General, in recent years, have you noticed more of an effort um, at cost control? It's, it's a huge priority for us. Uh, we recognize that the cost of healthcare is a national crisis. Uh, it's a crisis locally here in Massachusetts, but it's a national crisis uh, as well. In some ways, it's, it's worse in Massachusetts for many reasons, um, and we want to be part of the solution to to address that. Uh, we've entered, uh, we were a pioneer accountable care organization, so we were one of the first organizations to enter into accountable care organization contracts, and we've learned a lot and developed a lot of tactics to both improve the quality of care and reduce costs. You can imagine that you could do things that would hurt the quality of care and reduce costs. We, we don't want to do those things. We want to do the things that improve the quality of care and reduce costs. So a lot of this is around care coordination, um, empowering patients to better uh, understand uh, their disease so that they don't um, end up in emergency departments because they're scared of something that they don't quite understand, um, improve uh, transitions between the hospital and home, We've done a lot of work around delivering care to patients in the way that the patients most need it, which we think ultimately reduces utilization in ways that improve the quality of care. 
our mission for 200 years is about delivering healthcare. We are very committed to that mission. We want to make it better. We, re- we recognize that even with existing technology unchanged, we could do a lot better in how we deliver care in ways that both improve quality and reduce cost and serve our interests in these uh, accountable care organization contracts that we've voluntarily gone into. That's amazing. Um, and for our listeners who maybe aren't too familiar with ACOs or accountable care organizations, could you just give a brief overview of the structure um, and how you know how accountable ACOs are hoping to meet those goals that you mentioned? Sure. So accountable care organizations. Uh, in some sense, started with the Affordable Care Act of 2010. Uh, they've grown since then, and they've included uh, um, both Medicaid at the state level and commercial insurance in some cases as well, uh, although they sort of started with, with Medicare and, and, and the Affordable Care Act with health care reform in 2010. In general, their contract, so historically in medicine, certainly from 2000 to 2010, say, uh, the way that physicians and hospitals get paid is we can sort of get paid more for doing more. So, and in some cases, that probably uh, was good in the sense that it incentivizes uh, people to work hard and to sort of provide care to the people that need a lot of care and, and so forth and so on. Uh, but there weren't a lot of incentives to better coordinate care in ways that benefited patients that could reduce costs. So that, that, that was a little bit of a gap. Uh, and so that's how accountable care organizations sort of got developed. Um, so they incentivize us uh, to reduce the cost of care while meeting or exceeding quality benchmarks. And the way they do that is that there's retrospective reconciliation. So we're paid through uh, traditional fee-for-service. If we see patients in the office, we get paid. If we hospitalize them, do a test, we get paid. But at the end of the year, People check the total cost of care incurred by these patients, not only in our hospitals, uh, in our doctors, but also in other systems. So we're accountable for them no matter where they receive care. And, and at the end of the year, if we have uh, reduced the cost of care relative to a benchmark, we get some of the shared savings uh, as long as the quality metrics have been met as well. So it's a way to incentivize providers not only to provide services, but also to uh, make sure that they're hitting quality benchmarks and reducing the cost of care uh, in preventable ways. And what effect are we seeing in the change to care for these patients? So there have been a number of analyses uh, nationally, and, and so far I think a lot of the uh, effects that we've seen are, are real but relatively modest. There, there do appear to be, in general, cost reductions associated with accountable care organizations and some improvements in, provide, in, in patient experience. Um, but uh, they're, they're not massive effects. I think part of that is because, uh, as we've learned, that um, the infrastructure to support these programs uh, requires a lot of upfront time and money, but the returns are going to be slow over time, uh, which is, you know, as you might imagine, we're, we're fundamentally changing the way we deliver care. I think what we have learned, though, when you think about embedded case managers helping patients coordinate the, coordinate the care they receive and understand their diseases, uh, electronic consults is an option for patients who re- need to receive specialty care, uh, better care transitions to avoid readmissions. We understand from this experience of the last few years that this is a better way to deliver care. No matter what happens with... Pa- I, first of all, I'll just say clearly, I, I don't see a scenario where accountable care organizations go away. Uh, but you know, you never know what, what's going to happen in the future of public policy. We have seen such important 
um, salutary effects on the patients we serve that, that I can't imagine any scenario where we would depart from these things. We think many of these programs are a fundamentally better way to provide care than what we had done before. Um, going back to what you had said earlier, how like a lot of the evidence is showing now that um, prices are maybe have more to do with high U.S. healthcare costs than necessarily um, resource utilization. Um, in addition to you know structural changes like ACOs, do you also think that um, you know as a nation we should maybe move towards better price controls as well and policies um, you know get, like geared towards that end of the equation? Yeah, so I, I think that, um, I'll say this, I, I do think we need to have attention on price. Um, I, I think that, I, I wouldn't go so far as to, to propose price controls, but I do think that's a really important point that you're making, and um, I do think there needs to be better alignment of the cost of services and pharmaceuticals with the value that these uh, services provide, and and you know, and, and I think I I should be on the hook, right? Like if I'm doing something in the office, uh, there needs to be a rigorous assessment of what I'm doing. Uh, if I'm ordering procedures or tests in the in the coronary care unit, um, there needs to be some sort of assessment of what the benefit is to to the patients uh, in terms of determining the price. I don't think we've done a great job of that. Uh, so while I wouldn't propose price controls, I do think there needs to be more. Uh, uh, um, um, information um, going into the price of care, the prices of care that are related to quality. Um, it, some of these issues are really tricky because the higher so pharmaceuticals are much more expensive in the United States than they are in other countries. Um, some of that supports research and development. So there's it's almost like an externality issue, which is we're supporting the companies more, uh, and they're using this money to some extent to support research and development, and then that has uh, uh, helpful effects for other countries that are benefiting from the research and development. Um, but to some extent, uh, some of the prices of, of these drugs are, are, are simply too high. And, and so th that may be fine for a drug that's very effective, but then if a drug's minimally effective, uh, that, then maybe the price should, should, should reflect that. Uh, and that has not happened uh, very often in the United States. So wh while there's a number of reasons why I wouldn't support price controls for these sorts of things, I do think that um, quality and cost effectiveness should uh, be considered in in determining the price of, of some of these um, services and, and pharmaceuticals and, and, and even physician fees. I know some hospitals have moved towards capitation. Can you speak a little bit um, in regards to how physicians feel about that and what effect it's had in those specific hospitals? Yeah, so ca capitation is a word that was used a lot in the 1990s and, and sort of um, referred to fixed budgets. Um, I think the experience um, in the 1990s, um, and tr you know, I was like I was like in high school, so it wasn't a personal experience, but this is certainly the experience of our provider doctor community and patients, is that patients didn't like it, doctors didn't like it, sort of pit uh, primary care doctors against specialists and sort of uh, created closed networks and, and, and all sorts of things that, that no one liked. And I'll add, didn't really even reduce the cost of care that much. Um, I think the situation now is very different. Um, so while we're this, what's going on now with ACOs is also a movement away from 
uh, you do more, you get paid more, sort of a direct fee-for-service. It doesn't suffer from the same flaws that um, capitation, as, as, as it was used in the 1990s, was used. So like strictly fixed budgets, closed networks. Um, you know, one thing that's different about ACOs um, and managed care organizations, for example, from the 1990s, is that in an ACO, the patient still has freedom to to go wherever they want to go. That that's something that's very important to, to patients. It's very important to Americans, and I think we need to be respectful of that. So so I think that um, because of these contracts, we've we've um, paid more attention to the cost of care, but it's not the same sort of fixed budget stuff that we we saw in the 1990s uh, with the same sort of very rigid rules that patients and doctors and hospitals, no one really liked. Um, switching gears a little bit, um, could you tell us a little bit about the study you conducted linking public health with voting outcomes in the 2016 election? Sure, sure. I'd be delighted to. Um, we uh, did an analysis looking at, um, sort of a descriptive analysis, looking at um, associations of shifting in presidential voting. So, so as, as, as you know, as we all know, the 2016 presidential election was a dramatic shift for a number of uh, political reasons, but also had a, a shift of voting. So Wisconsin, for example, I, I don't believe had gone for Republicans since 1984 with Ronald Reagan, which was an election where he won nearly all the states of the, you know, the whole country. Um, it had been gone Democrat every year since, and then now to a Republican in 2016. But at the same time, there were areas, for example, in Georgia and in Texas, uh, highly educated, uh, wealthier suburbs that had you know, very Republican areas uh, in the South that shifted the other way. So there was, in some sense, a political realignment where areas had uh, moved one way or another, um, which is different than what we had seen in previous presidential elections, where it's sort of been, you know, someone wins or someone loses, but more or less the country's moving together. Uh, th- that's not exactly true, of course, it's an exaggeration, but, but um, to some extent it, it was true, and it certainly was this shifting concept with areas going different directions. Um, you know, obviously there was more shifting towards uh, the Republican because... You know, Trump won, but but there were there were areas of the countries that shifted towards uh, Democrat relative to previous voting, and so what we found is that there's been a lot in the public media about education and race and other variables that could have been associated with this. So what we wanted to do is look at healthcare. So we looked measures of public health uh, and looked at where areas shifted, how much health was related, even after adjusting for things like education uh, and race and age. Uh, health seemed to have a big um, association with this shift, uh, which I thought was was very interesting, um, especially because the uh, voting patterns had shifted so dramatically. And what got you interested in this research to begin with? <laughs> I, I, I have a background in political science, so I, I, I don't do a lot of that anymore, but my one of my master's degrees is in political science is in politics. Um, so I, I think I, I had a little bit of that in, in the back of my brain somewhere uh, and just started thinking about it more because of the dramatic nature of the election, I'd say. Um, I think I think the findings from that study are really interesting, and I'm curious to know your thoughts on why potentially, I mean, obviously you can't establish causality, but I mean, it is an interesting association. Um, what do you think there might be about, you know, 
a, a county with like poor public health outcomes, switching from um, you know traditionally voting for a Democratic president to then a Republican in the twenty sixteen election. Yeah, so I guess I'll just start by saying so. So um, while I share your sort of cautiousness about making causal claims in this analysis, um, it is interesting to speculate about the causal potential mechanisms. I think that. Um, there is an ecological fallacy issue with this analysis in the, in the sense that it's important to remember that we looked at counties. So we did not look within counties. So it may be that in the counties, for example, that shifted very right, the, the, the sickest patients in these unhealthy counties actually were shifting uh, left to the Democrat. We, we can't make those sorts of assessments because of, of the county level nature of the analysis, obviously we don't. You know, I don't think anyone does voting analysis of, of individual votes because the data aren't accessible. Uh, they're, they're in fact confidential. So, so I think um, we we are necessarily in this kind of work limited to that type of analysis. So so it's interesting to speculate about what happened within these counties. Uh, but but I will say this: I think it's likely to show that uh, distress of communities. Um, may have been associated with this voting pattern and associated with public health. And that at least provides a potential causal link uh, between these two factors, that uh, I think a lot of these communities were uh, distressed uh, in ways that a lot of us didn't fully appreciate and distressed in ways that uh, may not have been reflected in uh, relatively positive unemployment statistics and and so forth, that um, public health may have mattered in the sense that it was a manifestation of, of distressed communities that were, were that were voting a certain way. And I, and I think that that's, that's interesting, especially in the setting of epidemiological trends in the United States. If you remember, for the first time in many, many years, life expectancy is decreasing, not increasing. For the first time in decades, year-over-year data, for two straight years now, life expectancy has uh, decreased. Uh, it's not clear exactly why that's the case. There's the opioid epidemic. There's a lot of other um, potential explanations. But there's a variety of uh, uh, trends, the life expectancy, the um, opioid epidemic in particular, uh, that are things that we have not seen previously in the United States. Uh, again, I think public health matters. And I think uh, these trends, um, uh, no matter what you think of the result of the election, um, uh, clearly produced a disruptive a very different result, and I think that that shows that public health matters uh, in terms of these outcomes. And what do you think some of the solutions are for some of these quote-unquote counties that may be a little sicker than the rest of the nation? You know, I, th- I think we, you know, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about initially. I think it, it, you know, attention needs to be made to, to public health. We, we can't be uh, on the receiving end of. Um, uh, uh, data and epidemiology and sort of responsive uh, too late. We, we need to be proactive and um, address uh, the, the, the needs of, of, of all communities, um, especially those where you're seeing rapidly worsening health statistics. Um, in particular, I mean, that was always true, I think, but it's in particular true now that we're seeing such um, trends that we haven't seen um, in the modern era in the United States. It really is very concerning. And what do you think are some of the disconnects between data, policy, and implementation? Um, in your opinion, is good policy enough? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think the um, when you asked me uh, a similar question a little while ago, it was about MGH and our institutions. We, we take a lot of pride in sort of translating 
research into the care we deliver very, very quickly. I, I'm not sure that's nearly true enough at, at a policy level. It's partially this sort of salami-making uh, process. There's a lot of other things that go into the development of public policy. But as a society, it's to me, it's critically important that we respect uh, science and value the results of scientific analyses. And I think that's the first step. I think if the society appreciates the importance of these analyses uh, more, it's more likely because of public pressure to make its way into public policy. And that's the culture, ultimately, that we can build. And so, so what can we do as academics to sort of promote that? I think it's important that our research uh, is 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 relevant? Is timely? Addresses the needs of the American people. That that's not something that maybe from our end that we can do a little bit better to to try to build public support for uh, for science, for research, and for valuing the results of these analyses, uh, so that they actually ultimately uh, inform public policy better than than they have in the past. I agree. I also think it's very important to educate people in various different backgrounds and realms. Um, sometimes I feel that not enough education is given about some of these issues to begin with so that it doesn't go from policy to implementation yeah. mm-hmm. with a smooth transition. Yeah. And it's hard because like with, when we talk about culture shifts, I mean, they do happen, but they take so much time to happen. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's just happening at such a slower rate than all this information's, you know, coming out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I completely agree. Do you have any tips for any aspiring healthcare providers who also would want to be involved in policy or other pursuits beyond caregiving? I think that this is the way I think about it. I think all of us that deliver care, doctors, nurses, uh, respiratory technology. I mean, the whole suite of, of healthcare providers are really passionate about improving the lives and the health of individual patients. I think that what providers sometimes forget is that their experiences are actually very informative to other fields like research and public policy. And I think I would encourage people to realize that we can help even more people if at the same time we're treating patients, we use those experiences to inform uh, the larger issues that our societies face. That, that that's the that's the bit that um, that that I think is a little is an important point because I think that people go into clinical care in some cases because they're very sincere and they don't want all the uh, the circus like uh, atmosphere of of things like politics or public policy. Uh, but I, what I guess I would encourage um, many people who are clinicians is that. Um, this is actually how we can help a lot of people. And I think it's important to engage in that process. To change the system. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I think it's amazing. I think you offer a really unique perspective as somebody who is involved in both, you know, practice, policy, and research. That's kind of like the trifecta of what we need. Um, So, yeah, thank you so much for, yeah, taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you so much today for being here. We really enjoyed speaking with you. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming. All right.